All right, two men were marooned on an island. One man paced back and forth, worried and scared and trying to figure out how he was going to survive, while the other man sat reclining on a palm tree, sunning himself. The first man said to the second man, aren't you afraid that we are going to die? The other man said, no, I make $100,000 a week and I tithe faithfully to my church every week. The first man says, are you honestly expect me to believe that because you make a lot of money and tithe a lot of money, God automatically takes care of you? He says, oh, good heavens, no. I just know my pastor is going to find me. And to make sure we pick on both sides, a man and his family drove home after church. And the man complained about everything. The music was too loud. The sermon was too long. The announcements were unclear. The building was hot. The people were unfriendly. He went on and on complaining about virtually everything until his son, who had watched his dad give his offering, said, Dad, you have to admit, it wasn't a bad show for a dollar. Those two short jokes are all we have time for this morning because this is going to be a scripture-heavy sermon, um, so we kind of need to dive right in. So far, the series has been a blast. Last week, um, I felt like we dealt with the elephant in the room. You know, when you go to church, you're always kind of waiting for them to talk about money and giving. We talked about tithing, and I armed you with some scripture um, in case I ever try to pressure you to give money. You're now locked and loaded, and you have your defense ready if you missed Last week, you're going to want to go listen to that message because you need that ammunition. And I'd love to give you an overview, but I kind of feel like what we talked about last week, you kind of got to get the whole package together. Otherwise, it uh, it can feel a little uneven. So uh, I do recommend, it's kind of a key message last week. If you If you don't normally go on and listen to our messages, text me. I'll tell you how to do it. I'll send you a link. But I do feel like you need last week's um, message. It kind of encapsulates how we feel about giving here at Open Table. What I will share about last week, though, is we kind of came to the conclusion that as a New Testament, non-Jewish believers, the Bible tells us that we commit 100% of everything to God, our time, our talent, our resources, our, our energy to God. The original disciples, the people who were most close to us, just gave everything. They just brought it and gave it. And even though Christian communing is not really practical today. We still offer everything to God. Everything we have is, is his, and, and it's at his disposal. We can do, uh, he can do with, ever, with it whatever he wants. And then when it comes to giving to the church, we give 100% of what we can give cheerfully. The, the one passage Paul really digs in is that God loves a cheerful giver. Don't ever do it grudgingly. Don't ever do it because you've been pressured to do it. Decide in your own heart how much you're supposed to give, and then give it cheerfully. Whatever you can give cheerfully, if that's 10% awesome. If it's only 2%, if it's a dollar and you can feel excited about giving that dollar, give it and see what God does and, and see if God doesn't stretch your heart and ask you to give a little bit more. And, and maybe you give faithfully, but it stings every single time you do it and you're grumpy and it makes you come to church grumpy that they want your money. Man, back off. Don't give so much. Try and figure out another way that you can give and pour yourself out cheerfully to God because he's more into your attitude. Well, I open with these two kind of New Testament financial principles, because we're going to use those as our launching point for this morning's message, because uh, we've established that giving in the New Testament is more about relationship than percentage. It's a condition of your heart, which begs the question, if we're supposed to give to God whenever we can give joyfully, what, we, what do we do with the rest? How do we manage the rest? And what, whatever amount that is, how do we manage it? Because it's God's, but it's still technically in our control. And so we're going to talk today about what the Bible says about what we do and how we manage the rest of it. 
Well, as I explained in week one, I'm going to do quite a bit of bouncing around the Bible. Um, I don't normally like to do this. I don't like proof texting and jumping around and finding verses. But with this topic, we kind of have to. We kind of have to go and look at multiple places. And what we're hoping to do today is to kind of uh, uncover a theme, which means this idea that is constant throughout Scripture. And to do that, we have to deal with a lot of Scripture at once. And, and so we're going we're gonna, to uh, be bouncing around a bit, but try to hang with me. So this is what we read last week. We're going to start here. And all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. So this is kind of our starting point this week. We talked about this last week, these people who were overwhelmed by the love of God displayed on the cross and the power of God displayed at the resurrection, that the only way they could imagine responding to this incredible divine generosity was with generosity of their own. They came and, and gave everything they had, 100% of it. And like I say, we, we don't share everything like a big commune anymore, but that doesn't mean that the things we own can't be committed to God. We, can't, we can go to God and say, God, what car should I drive? What car would, would help advance your kingdom? What, how can I use my house to advance your kingdom and be generous to people? How can I, how can I use everything I have? Then, and suddenly, everything we do with our money becomes just as spiritual as giving to the church because we've committed it all to God, and, and, and we seek his guidance on how to deal with it. So Luke says the result of, of them experiencing the generosity of God was to give back. And he says there was no needy people among them. So one of the earliest core values of this brand new church was that there be no needy people among them, that they cared for the poor. Everyone's needs were met. We actually, historians have gone back and tried to figure out, non-Christian historians who, who have tried to figure out why did Christianity succeed? Of all the things that could have happened, what made this one succeed? And so they went back and read the, the kind of historical accounts of everybody who was writing history at that time in any shape or form. And they came up with three things that, that made the church that they could come up with. Obviously, they're leaving out the sheer power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the three things that they could come up with that made the Christian church different. Number one, they were more inclusive than anybody else. Back then, number, you know, no, no real religions accepted women other than goddess worship, and then they didn't accept men. And there was, you know, territorial gods and geographic gods. And, and so Christianity was the first religion that came along and said, we'll just take anybody. Like, we'll just, women, Greeks, Romans, you know, Jews, whoever. So they were more inclusive than everybody. Number two was kind of funny. They died better than anybody else. They were uh, persecuted very heavily. And there's all kinds of accounts. And a ton of historians commented on it. So it obviously made an impact of Christians being drugged to the Colosseum and uh, they would release lions, you know, which was fairly common. And half the fun was watching the people run from the lions while the lions chased them all down. And the Christians, there's, there's a ton of accounts of them just holding hands and singing hymns while the lions would attack. And they would just stand fearlessly in the face of death because they were being persecuted for their faith. And there's tons of these stories. And it actually made an impact on people. They were like, the thing I am most afraid of, these people somehow don't fear. Whatever they have, I need. And so there was a lot of people who who converted to Christianity just because these people did not fear death. They died better than anybody else. And the third thing was that they cared for the poor, and they cared for all the poor. There's actually a, a famous letter written from this uh, 
servant of, of uh, uh, the Roman emperor, and it says, uh, if we would simply take care of our poor, I believe this funny Jewish sect of Christi- Christianity would die. He goes, because they care for Christian poor and Jewish poor and Roman poor. They don't care. They care for all the poor. If we would just take care of our own poor, I think they would die. The reason they're, they keep spreading is because they keep helping the poor. So this was a constant theme early in the church. Unfortunately, Luke kind of writes the book of Acts where we get our scripture from today as a kind of a history book, more than a theological treatise. And so it's, he kind of tracks what's going on in the church. As the book continues, um, the next chapter, we kind of get this lesson in authenticity as two people come and they're kind of inauthentic about the way they give, and, and it ends tragically um, if you want to look it up. But then uh, it goes straight to the church is growing, and surprise, surprise, growth means growing pains, right? And so in chapter 6, the apostles are for the first time kind of feeling the pressure of the growth, and uh, it reads like this. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting uh, of all believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then the apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Lion King, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert from the Jewish faith. The seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. So many of the Jewish priests were converted. Quick history. When the Christianity started, it was actually the day of Pentecost is a pilgrimage festival, meaning the Jews, no matter where they are, come back to Jerusalem um, to worship. And so there's three of those a year where they would pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. Well, Pentecost happens during one of those. Pentecost is an actual Jewish feast. And so there's Jews from all over when Pentecost happens. And a lot of them got saved. The crowd that they were preaching to, I don't know if you remember that when, when the Holy Spirit fell, everybody was hearing them in their own language. That's because a lot of the people there are from what we call the diaspora, this movement of the Jews away from Jerusalem. So a lot of these people grew up in, in non-Hebrew speaking lands and they would come back to Jerusalem for these festivals. And so a lot of them stayed. And some of them, you know, stayed and they're, and they're now part of the church. And uh, because they're still in Jerusalem, some of the, it sounds like some of the Hebrew-speaking women, so some of the local native uh, Israelite widows uh, were, felt like they were being, the other group felt like they were being taken better care of than some of the Greek-speaking outsiders. They're still Jews, but they don't speak Hebrew because they were probably born and raised outside of Jerusalem. So they come back, and there's now conflict. They don't feel like they're being... Uh, taken care of as well. And this growth means conflict. Um, and the thing I want to pull out of this is uh, the thing that happens, the thing that's going on that creates this kind of growth movement for the very first church hire, the first staff that they create, is because they're unwilling to stop feeding the poor. They're now feeling this tension when, and they really only have two programs. They have the kind of teaching prayer study program and feeding the poor because they're unwilling to give this up 
They're unwilling to let this fall by the wayside. They make their first church hire. They hire guys, and their job was to make sure we don't slack on this part of what we do. We have to keep caring for the poor. And if you follow the book of Acts, Luke now kind of focuses on the big movements of the, of the church. The first Christian martyr is killed, um, and this kicks off a big persecution. Saul um, kind of organizes the first organized persecution against Christians. The gospel goes up into Samaria, which nobody was expecting. Nobody was ready for Samaritans to get saved, but they do. Saul, public enemy number one of the church, becomes a Christian. That, nobody saw that coming. That was kind of a, a big move. James is killed, which kicks off the second organized persecution, which actually makes Peter have to run. And when he runs, the church's headquarters moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. Nobody saw that coming. That was a totally new move. And then they launched their first missionary campaign. Up to this point, all of the movements of the gospel were driven by persecution. They were just the church would have to flee an area, and they would take the gospel with them, and the gospel would spread when they would run. Well, Paul kicks off the first, like, on-purpose missions trip like now we're going to go spread the gospel on purpose he goes out and he's planting churches everywhere so since that big drama in chapter six where they're trying to figure out what to do with with this food program they have that they don't really talk about it much it'd be easy to think that that the church was now only consumed with the movement of the gospel which is why i'm glad uh paul wrote about it in galatians he's writing so in chapter 15 of acts they have this huge church council, all the leaders of the church get together to kind of make big decisions about theology and what it means to be a Christian. It was the very first historical ecumenical council. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. And they all gathered to figure out, what. and kind of the main thing they were digging into is what do we do with Paul? Paul is spreading this gospel out amongst non-Jewish people. And how, how do they act? Do they have to become a Jew first and then a Christian? And they didn't know what to do. So they get together and talk about it. And they don't really tell us much, except Paul does. Paul in Galatians, when he's writing about this council, he's writing about the way he was received. And he says this. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued to work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was, and I put that pause there strategically, This is a loaded setup, right? Think about this. The major church council has just taken place. Historically, the first ecumenical council, two of the people who had lived with Jesus, actually lived with him, are validating your ministry. And they give you one caveat, one thing not to forget, right? What would that be? Like, whatever you do, don't forget to preach the cross, right? Do not deviate from the true gospel, don't let people drink, smoke, gamble, or dance, right? Whatever. If, you're, if we're planting an open table community church, you know, somewhere else, what would the one caveat be that we would be like, this we cannot bend on? I, I personally have no idea what that would be, but maybe something to think about. Amongst all the debates in church over theology and biblical interpretation, here's the only thing Peter and Paul told or Peter and James told Paul not to forget. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continue to work amongst the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. That's the only caveat they give him. You're doing an amazing job. Whatever you do, don't forget the poor. So even though Luke doesn't record it all in Acts, it seems that by chapter 15, caring for the poor, this core value from chapter 4 and chapter 6 
is still alive. One of the strongest values of the early church, the very first version of us, the very first version of people who gathered to do what we do, was that generosity towards those less fortunate than ourselves is of key importance. Now, considering Jesus' ministry and focus on the poor, it could be easy to consider this as primarily a New Testament focus, especially since the Old Testament seems more about obeying the rules. But the early church actually um, pulled this concept straight from the Jewish scripture, which, you know, we would consider the Old Testament. They just considered it the Bible. Um, Deuteronomy 15. This is the chapter after the one we dug into last week about the tithe. It says this. There should be no poor among you, for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he is giving you as a special possession. You will receive this blessing if you are careful to obey all the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. You will lend money to many nations, but he, but will never need to borrow. You will rule many nations, but will ne- they will not rule over you. But if there are any poor Israelites in your town, when you arrive in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited or refuse someone alone because the year of canceling debts is close at hand. That's a long story I won't get into. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, it will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly. Ah, there's that word grudgingly again. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be someone, some in the land who are poor. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. Feel the tension in that passage? I love how it starts with, there should be no poor among you. And then it goes back to, but there will always be poor among you. It's, it's kind of ironic. And it's a tension we, we feel a lot. Once I know Jesus, there should be no more sin in my heart. But there's always sin in my heart. I have a million reasons to be grateful. Why am I so discontented? Like we live in those kinds of tensions where we know there should be no poor, but there's always poor. And, and, and that's, I love that the Bible just owns those tensions. If everyone does what they should do, the blessing should be so rich that there'll be plenty for everyone. There should be no poor, no poor. Only, only if, if only. But there will be poor. And because of that, God builds all through the Old Testament this incredible system to see to it that the poor are cared for. When you harvested a field, um, a lot of farmers, the, the, the edge of the fields would be a little more sparse because you're being more careful with your seed lest you just carelessly throw it over on some stuff you didn't break up. So the, the last few rows were always a little bit thin, but the people who wanted every penny would harvest over there anyway. They would take their harvesters clear over to the edges. And God put in the system where he was like, hey, don't harvest to the edges of your field. Leave those so the poor can come and, and, and gather some. It was called gleaning. And also when they would plow or when they would harvest, it would, you know, some would fall on the ground and, and the, the really, the penny pinchers would come back through on a second pass and pick up all those things that fell. And God said, no, no, no. When, when you get to, to the promised land and you harvest your fields, don't make a second pass. Let the poor come through and, and make the second pass. The clearest picture of this, if you want, is Leviticus 23:22. It says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field. And do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord. 
Anybody know what sabbatical years are? Anybody ever heard someone talk about sabbatical years, like the Sabbath? Like every seventh year, you're supposed to leave a field empty. You don't plant anything that year. Farmers and scientists have gone through and studied this and found it's, it's incredibly good for the, for the soil to build its nutrients back up. It's a really healthy thing to give the land a chance to rest every once in a while. So you're supposed to plant it for six years. On the seventh year, you leave it empty. But what we often forget is the reason God said this, plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and life and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. I'm sure the scientists are right, and I'm sure that's why God instituted this, but he could have explained to them crop rotation, you know, that if you plant brome, it puts things more back in the soil than it takes out. There's other ways to do it, but that would leave out the poor. And God puts this sabbatical system in so the poor can get fed. Of course, last week we talked about Deuteronomy 14, where during the Feast of Tabernacles, you would take your tithe and you would eat it in the presence of the Lord. You would eat your own tithe. But every three years, you would go in and, uh, and put your entire tithe in the storehouse. So actually one-third of your tithe, if you didn't listen to last week, you've got to go listen to it. It'll blow your mind. Only one-third of your tithe did what we classically classically think the tithe did. And this is repeated again in Deuteronomy 26, but let's just read the one from Deuteronomy 14. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows and in your towns, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. The quick little background is kind of interesting. When the Bible refers to foreigners, especially the foreigners living among you, um, it is talking about travelers, sojourners passing through the land a little bit. But mostly back then when someone, a foreigner was living among you is because there was either war or famine in their own land. And so for someone to be in your land and not on their own land, I mean, in an agricultural society, they're separated from their income. These are, these are un, unemployed people. These are people who, who for some reason had to leave their source of income and, and come to your land hoping to find food. We have a picture of it in uh, the book of Ruth where there's no food, so they had to leave and go to Moab hoping to get fed. And then when everything falls apart in Moab, they, they heard that there was bread again in, in Bethlehem, and so they came back to their home because the famine was over. And so it was very common so when the Old Testament talks about the poor, it's usually talking about Jewish poor, like your, when your own people are poor. When it's talking about foreigners, it's talking about people who have come to your land um, because they, they are starving in their own land or had to flee their own land. And so they're separated from their income. So it's more like unemployed people. And it's kind of interesting because the poor, when I talk about the poor, uh, and this is a side note, I don't know that this is important, but it does say it, it institutes work programs, like let them come harvest your field behind you. There was always something for them to do. It wasn't like an entitlement program per se, but the, the foreigners among you got to eat out off of the, the storehouse. Interesting. Um, which brings us to maybe the most quoted scripture in the Old Testament about tithing. Tell me if you've heard this one. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do, we, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. You are, not, you are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord, 
of heaven's armies. I will open up the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Anybody ever heard this scripture? Anybody ever hear a preacher tell you this is what you're supposed to do with one-third of your tithe? Anybody? This is the storehouse tithe. This is the one that he talks about in Deuteronomy 14. This is the every third year you bring your tithe to the storehouse and it goes in. So this is the one designated to go to the poor. This is the one designated to go to those in need. He says, you've, you've robbed me of the part that was supposed to go to the, the poor. Unfortunately, the people who generally push this verse the hardest aren't pushing it for the poor because when Malachi gives this scripture to the people, what he's basically saying is you have neglected the poor. You're no longer filling the storehouse for the poor. Almost every time God talks about this reciprocal blessing where if you give to me, I will give back to you that, that, that sowing and reaping thing we talk about, it's almost always talking about giving to the poor, not necessarily giving to the church. Let's look at a couple. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly. And, and actually the, the, the Hebrew translation is because of this is what the, it's a phrase in Hebrew that says because of this, but uh, not grudgingly and the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Give it to the Levites, foreigners, orphans, and widows in your town so that they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. And then, of course, here in Malachi, it says that if we give to the needy, if we, if we give this portion that goes to the poor, God will open up windows of heaven and pour out blessings. And the scary part of this verse, of course, is, is that, that curse, you have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse. That is crazy, strong language. You may remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you have any idea why they were destroyed? Anyone? I mean, we, we feel like we know, right? Like we've built, we've, we have a word that talks about it, right? Ezekiel actually tells us in a prophecy where Ezekiel is basically chewing out Israel, like this passage in Malachi, he brings up that old story of Sodom. He says, surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, Sodom and her daughters were never as wicked as you and your daughters. Sodom's sins were, (laughs) I put that pause there again, another strategic one. You ready for this list of sins so detestable that God destroys an entire land? If you have kids, cover their ears because this is Sodom. Sodom's sins were pride gluttony and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. Look it up in your Bible. Check me. We feel like we know what Sodom was about. Pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. We weren't expecting that from Sodom. And in case you think this really strong language is just Old Testament stuff, you know, that heavy Old Testament, Jesus is all about grace and love, not cursing and destroying. Let's look at Matthew 25. We're pretty familiar with this. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence. And he will separate the people as as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. 
And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you? I shortened it because it takes forever. Repeats all those. When did we ever see you like that? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire, prepared for the devils and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, When did we see you like this? And he answered, I'll tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing me. And then they go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Strong language again. And I'm not going to make a salvific exercise out of this. I'm not saying that you have to give to the poor to get into heaven. We know that salvation is by faith alone, but I also know I'm not going to mess with that strong language. That's strong. Jesus himself saying, and they will go away into eternal punishment. Really strong language. This sounds incredibly similar to some of those Old Testament verses. What I love the most is look at the kind of generosity Jesus depicts. Food. When I'm hungry, you fed me. Drink. When I'm thirsty, you gave me drink. Clothing. When I was naked, you clothed me. Your home. When I was a stranger, you invited me into your home. Your time and your energy. When I was sick, you cared for me. And your presence, when I was in prison, you visited me. This is not your checkbook. When we, we've said this in week one, when the Bible talks about giving, when the Bible talks about your, your stewardship, it's talking about so much more than your checkbook. It's talking about everything you are, how you steward everything you are. So much more than a tithe check. Everything. So how do we respond to this? Okay, that was the Bible-heavy part. Let's talk about us. One day some people came to Jesus and they wanted to catch him in a trap, it says. So they, they asked him about taxes. He was gathering a lot of people and most of them were poor. And they figured if we get him talking about taxes, he'll either have to back Rome and back taxes, which will make him lose some popularity amongst the poor, or... He'll have to talk bad about taxes, talk bad about Rome, at which point we can turn him into the centurions and they'll take care of him. So no matter which way he goes here, we've got him. He'll either lose popularity or get in trouble with the government. And they asked him, you know, should we pay taxes? Is it right to pay taxes? It reads like this. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their trickery and said, show me a Roman coin. Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give it to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Have you ever heard this scripture before? We talk about it quite a bit. Typically, we, we like to assume this means taxes go to the government, tithes go to God. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. I think the language here is, 
is tricky and interesting. He says, show me a Roman coin whose picture and title are stamped on it. I actually like the King James Version. It's the one I learned on. It says, show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have? Whose image does it bear? Where have we heard that before? Whose image does it bear? Obviously, if you go back to creation, God says, let us make man in our image. Let's make him in our image. Then if you go to Revelation 22, which I love, it says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the lamb shall be in it. His servants shall serve him. They'll see his face and his name will be inscribed on their foreheads. Whose image and inscription does it bear? I don't think Jesus is making a distinction between taxes and tithes here. I think he's making a distinction between money and people. Whose image and inscription does it bear? He's saying, yeah, pay your taxes to God, but people are the true value. People are what we have to put above everything else. That's what we render to God. We might ask, how do we render something to God? And he told us, when you do this to the least of these, my brethren, you're doing it to me. You're doing it to me. It almost sounds like when, in, when he's talking about that tithe in Malachi and he says, you know, you've cheated me. You've cheated me by not giving to the poor. And then Jesus comes along using almost the same language. When you do this to them, you're doing it to me. All throughout the scripture, God makes this odd connection between our love and worship of him and our treatment of people. And Malachi says, you've stolen from me. And Matthew, he says, if you want to bless me, here's how you do it. It's about people, image bearers of God. I told you I was going to spend this message telling you how to manage your stewardship, how to manage your money outside the church, the money that doesn't go here. And in one quick answer, it's with generosity. With generosity. Any other answer from the pulpit is too specific. The reality is there are times to borrow. There are times to spend. There are times you have a lot. There are times you have a little. There's nothing I could say from the scripture or from the pulpit that tells you exactly how to manage your money. Life is dynamic. It changes all the time. But no matter where you are, you can be generous. No matter what is going on in your life, you can be generous. If the Bible says one thing about how we manage our resources, it's with generosity above all else. I also told you that in this message, you'd hear me say something that you've probably never heard another preacher say. So here it is. If you have money to give, and it's tithe money, if this is your offering and you have the option of bringing it here to the church or giving it to a real human being in need. For the love of God, don't bring it here. Give it to people. I don't... <laughs> I'm not talking about throwing it at Salvation Army. or it, That's good. I'm talking about a person you can look them in the eyes and all you have to give them is your tithe money. I give you permission to give it. Take care of people. That's what's most important. Give to those in need. If you see somebody in need, take care of them. 
And if you can't tithe because of it, that's okay. The way I understand it is when you give to the poor, God opens the floodgates of heaven and it all dumps on you. I think the church will be fine. I think if we take care of the poor, if we commit as a people to care for those around us in need, God will take care of us. If you're looking a real human being in the eyes and you don't help them because all you have is your tithe money, then you've done it wrong. I have failed. In fact, if you want a tax write-off, Come talk to me. We'll find a way for you to give it to the church and I'll give it to the people so you can get a tax write-off out of the deal. Whatever. And by all means, we need to work together to make this space happen. I'm, I'm not discouraging giving to the church. Part of my pay comes from your generosity. You know, I'd love it. If you have money, please give. If you have time, please serve. If, if you're a prayer warrior, please pray for us you have talent, share them with us. The church obviously has to pay its bills and do its thing. But if it's a choice between us and the poor, the poor win every time. Every time. But to be generous, it means a couple things. Here's the practical part. First, you can't be generous if you don't have any margins. If you spend 100% of your money, if you spend if you spend 100% of your time, if if your talents are all used up somewhere else, if, if you're using 100% of your resources, you've got no margins to be generous. So you have to create some margins. Second, it means you have to make a plan. Isaiah says this. says, For fools speak foolishness and make evil plans. They practice ungodliness and spread false teachings about the Lord. They deprive the hungry of food and give no water to the thirsty. The smooth tricks of scoundrels are evil. They plot crooked schemes. They lie to convict the poor, even when the cause of the poor is just. But generous people plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. Generous people make a plan to do what is generous. Generosity is not just going to happen. Very few of us will ever just have extra money laying around. I have no idea what to spend this money on. Very few of us are going to have extra time just laying around. Every once in a while, I love it when my kids are sitting around like, I'm bored. And the first thought that always hits my head is, oh, God, I miss boredom. Most of us just barely trying to keep our noses above water. Sometimes you hear a sermon like this about generosity and the, the temptation is to go out and just give it all away. That's not a good plan. I've, some of you heard me tell the story before. When that's when I first got married, you know, we're I think we'd only been married a week or two. We go to this big Christian crusade, and they give an altar call, and hundreds of people get saved. And I'm just weeping. And they pass a plate after that. And I had just cashed my paycheck, my whole paycheck. is That's back, I don't even think we had a checking account yet. And it's cash. And the offering comes by, and I just throw the whole thing in. And I watch Esther, like, stiffen up next to me in my peripherals. And I thought, probably should have talked to her about that. Yeah, it's not a great way to be generous. Earlier in our marriage, we used to eat a lot at the spaghetti factory. You remember the spaghetti factory, right? Yeah, great food, really good prices, which is probably why they're not there anymore. But there uh, used to be this homeless guy that sat against a brick wall really close to the spaghetti factory, and he was always there. And we had gone several times where basically Esther and I had to 
kind of share a small plate because I'd given most of our dinner money to the homeless guy. And so she started getting smart. And when we were going to the spaghetti factory, she'd give me like a little allowance. I will take the money. Here's $5 for the homeless guy. And we would, we would make a plan. Truth is, I've been able to give far more over the past 28 years because Esther taught me to give less. She taught me to make a plan. She taught me to create margins so that we can give. Otherwise, I would have given it all away, you know, in the first month, and I'd be sitting next to the homeless guy <laughs> trying, to, trying to get a few bucks. That goes with your time, energy, talents. If you give away all your time and energy and you burn yourself out and destroy your health, you're no good to anyone. In February, we're going to be offering financial peace like we've been talking about. It's nine weeks. It's a financial method to get your finances under control. It can help you to be intentional with your money instead of just being reactive. If you don't tell your money where to go, it goes away all by itself. I absolutely cannot recommend it more, but if the reason you get your finances under control is so that you can live in a bigger house and you can spend $60,000 cash on a car or so you can create some cushy retirement, then you're doing it wrong. None of those things are bad. If, if you've got money to do all that stuff and be generous, by all means. But the reason we get our finances under control is so we can be generous, so we can make an impact on this world with our goodness. And by all means, if, if Dave Ramsey helps you come up with thousands and thousands of dollars and you want to give extra to the church, just make the check out to Pastor Chris Goes to Tahiti Fund and we'll, we'll take it. But make a plan to be generous. Make a plan with your money that creates margins where you can bless real people and help real people. So the way that I'd love for us to respond to this message is by looking at our finances and first asking yourself, do I have a generous heart? Do I want to be generous? Is, is, is the desire of my heart to make an impact on people with generosity? Do I want to be known and remembered as somebody who gave And if not, if that's not you, while we're taking communion today, while we're celebrating this, this act of generosity, this extreme act of generosity, maybe just offer Jesus what you have and say, make me more generous. Give me a generous heart. I want to give. If, if, if you've been wounded by church in the area of money and, and people have begged you for money and, it, and, it, and you have an edge, then Please practice giving, just not here. Just, just see what it feels like. Create a sense of generosity in your own heart and life out there because if there's wounds in here, that's just going to pick on the wounds. But in some way, create generosity in your heart. Find somebody to give to. If you don't have space in your finances to be generous, uh, make a plan. While you're coming to communion, Make a commitment to God. I, I, I'm going to get my finances in order so I can be generous. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, my goal, I may not have anything to give anybody right now. I may not even have enough to give the credit card company, but I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to, I want to get myself into a place where I can be generous. That might be five years down the road, but make a plan to be generous. Let generosity drive what you do. If your finances are strong, maybe making money comes easy to you. Ask yourself if you're living generously. I'm not taking an offering here. This is nothing about the church. In fact, if you 
hear this message and and it makes you want to give more to the church and not to real humans than I messed it up. Like, I want you to give to the church. Let's be honest. Like, we have things we'd love to do. It's, it's not that. But if you give here and don't grow in generosity to another real human being that you can look into their eyes, then we got this message wrong. Out there, being generous out there. If you make money, if you've got plenty of money and you're a generous person, God bless you. May your tribe increase. If you make money and you have money and you're not living generously, as you come to the table today, repent. Repent of that. This, this act of generosity, this Jesus giving everything for you. As we celebrate that generosity, maybe ask Jesus to make you more generous. I feel like there's two motivating pressures in our life, these two things that can drive us, love and fear. And if we're driven by fear, if we're terrified we're not going to have enough, if we're living like we're in some kind of extreme scarcity because we're afraid, you know, to give, we're afraid to take care of other people, if, if we're driven by fear, we'll never be generous. Generosity comes from love. It comes from deciding other people are valuable. They're the image bearers of God. They're the ones who, who, who God has put his, his image and his inscription on. That's what's important. Generosity comes from this deep abiding love in us. If we're driven by fear, we'll never be generous. So just pray that God just fill you with love. As we come to the table, ask for love. Let's go to the table.